Also, I just want to say I've got Alison here with me. So if you hear somebody shouting out praise the Lord or hallelujah or something like that, she may well do that. You never know. Uh, <laughs> but look, before I get into the talk, I want to tell you the main point of what I want to say today. And it's this. Church, we can make a difference. I really believe that we can. And I say this because of what I'm going to talk about. It's quite overwhelming, some of the things I'm going to say. Uh, and some of the things I'm going to say is probably something you'd rather not know about. And because, although, uh, because although these are big issues, we have a powerful God. And, and I want us to see that although we can't solve all the problems, we can make a difference in the lives of the poor and the oppressed peoples from around the world. We can make a difference to ease the suffering of modern slaves that we were hearing about earlier and the workers that are exploited everywhere if we do our part. We have to. It's right here on our doorstep. And I don't know if you read that story in the Sunday Times last weekend about the fashion retailer Boohoo accused of slavery after paying its garment workers as little as £3.50 an hour in a factory in Leicester. Apparently an undercover reporter spent two days working in there and exposed them, uh, obtaining covert video footage of himself working in the factory under another big fashion label, Nasty Gal. And the Home Secretary has now asked the National Crime Agency to investigate modern slavery in Leicester's clothing factory. So I think there's more to come. And this is just up the road. And almost certainly there are many more cases we have no idea about, perhaps even in your own town or street. And this is so hard to understand, more than 200 years since slavery was abolished to find that it's still thriving. The UN's International Labour Organization estimates that 21 million people around the world are trapped in some form of modern slavery. It just looks a bit different these days. That's all a worker on a factory line crippled by debt that they cannot pay back. A man on a construction site in a foreign country without his passport or wages. A woman selling drugs on a roadside threatened with beatings and rape if she doesn't earn enough. And we've only got to dig a bit to find that the supply chain of the world's major commodities have instances of slavery from the food that we eat to the phones that we use, the clothes that we wear, its influence is everywhere and it's growing. So record numbers of people at the moment are fleeing violence and poverty and traffickers are ready to exploit them. The International Office of Migration believes that 70% of migrants arriving in Europe by boat have been human trafficked, uh, have been victims of human trafficking organ trafficking or exploitation. And in the UK, the government estimates that there are 13,000 people trapped in slavery, working in hotels, care homes, nail bars, car washes, or locked in prisons that have been turned into brothels. And church, I believe that we can make a difference. Even when we hear statistics like these and we wonder where on earth do we start? And you don't have to look very far to find the stories of some of them I found, well, they're just inexplicable, they're unbelievable, and they're unexpected even, and so hard to understand. Which is why I think many of us, myself included, 
have chosen not to look, not to allow ourselves to be affected because, well, not knowing kind of helps. It kind of helps us not to feel responsible. Ignorance is bliss, as they say. And so why am I saying all this? Because James doesn't give us a choice. As I've looked at the next part of the series, I've been compelled to look at the problem because in the next part of the book, although he writes to the church, he speaks to those outside the church, the rich who've oppressed and exploited the poor, and he pronounces judgment on them. I'm going to read this section to you from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, but listen out for this. The rich, as I will explain, are the big business of the ancient world, and big business is still the problem today. So why is James speaking to the church about it, and what are we meant to do about it? That's what the message is today. So let's just read the passage. It's James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay. The workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Wow. I mean, James doesn't pull any punches yet again, does he? But let's answer this question first. Who are the rich? Well, they could be people in the church, but it's unlikely they're believers because James doesn't call them to repent or offer any advice on how they are to change like he does with the business people within the church just a few verses before. He just levels these charges at them as if they will never change. And so most commentators will agree that the rich James has in view are the big landowners of the time, the main employers, the slave owners. And these were the people who were in control and as a result had the most political and economic power in their society. They were, if you like, the big companies of their day as Cadbury's was to Bourneville or as Sainsbury's were to their communities around the UK. Big powerful families who had the most power and responsibility over those who had the least power and the fewest rights. And James calls upon these people, the rich, to weep and wail because of how they've abused their position in society. He says, your wealth has a limited lifespan, and yet you've given everything to accumulate it for yourselves, and you've neglected those who are vulnerable. You failed to live up to your responsibilities. He says, you've hoarded your wealth and committed crimes of extortion against your workers, and you think you'll get away with it, but the thing is, God sees you, and he's going to hold you to account because he always hears the cries of the poor. He says, you're acting as if the world will go on forever, but it won't, certainly not for you, because however rich you are, you still can't take it with you. It's only been entrusted to you for your lifetime, so use it wisely. Now, that's my paraphrasing 
of what it seems to me that James is saying. But James's brutal condemnation of the rich is because in God's eyes, these institutions of wealth, if I can call them that, have a greater responsibility for those in society who are dependent upon them and can't live without them than for those who are not given such privilege and power. I mean, you do realize that, don't you? We're only trustees of the wealth that God has given to us. It doesn't belong to us. God allows wealth to some to see that you do what is right with it. So can you be trusted with more? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Or have what you've got, what you've got, is it actually enough for you? It's just an aside to think about. But I believe that with great wealth comes great responsibility. So that big companies who exploit their workers, those who pollute their supply chains with slavery, will have to answer for it to God. And the same applies to governments who refuse to regulate their industries, who turn a blind eye, blind eye and take bribes to overlook breaches of regulation, governments who fail to protect their people in the coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> they too will be held to account by God. One day he will judge the world, its leaders and its systems. And this is the context from which James is speaking, drawing heavily on Old Testament prophecy and principle. He reminds the church of God's future reckoning with the world. But I also think there's something else here. As I wrestled with this passage, I've kept coming back to this niggling question. Why does James speak these words to the church, which only apply to the rich, who presumably will never read this? Now, what are we meant to do with it? Do we have some responsibility here? And if so, what is our responsibility? Well, there are two things that I've had a growing conviction about as I've gone over and over these verses to so see what you think. Firstly, I think that we have a responsibility to hold the rich to account. You know, the rich may indeed in God's eyes have a greater responsibility because of the power their wealth gives them. But surely it must also be ours to hold them to account, to speak up, to take up, to call the rich, to take their responsibility seriously for people who have no voice, no rights, no power. And just in case you need a bit of help to see this, let me just run a few verses by you because Fighting poverty and tackling injustice is no new concept for 2020. The Bible is saturated with issues of social justice. God got there first. He's got so much to say about it. Now, let me just give you a few examples. I'm going to just throw a load of verses at you. First of all, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.15, God says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor uh, um, or favoritism to the do not pervert justice by not showing personality to them, partiality to the poor, or favoritism to the great, but you judge, but judge your neighbor fairly. I think I might have got that verse wrong somehow. I've reproduced it wrong. Anyway, look it up. It's Leviticus 19:15. Deuteronomy 27:19. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. 
Proverbs 29, 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no concern. Into the New Testament, Matthew 12, 18, Matthew quoting Isaiah concerning Jesus says, here is my servant that I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Acts 17, 30 to 32, Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Linking right there with the resurrection. That's how significant it is. The Bible shouts out to us about issues of injustice, and we must listen because it's so close to God's heart. So how can we do this? So, or, or at least how can we make a start in this? And I'm going to give you a few ideas. They're so inadequate, really, but we need to get started uh, because closely connected, our second responsibility is to right the wrongs that we can. You know, although we might not be rich, the rich, we bear some of the same responsibility because I think that materialism has in some way made us their partners. So, for example, when we bought goods that have been produced by those that have been enslaved and abused, we've literally bought into this responsibility in some sense, even though we weren't aware of it at the time of purchase. It's an inadequate example, but I hope this helps and it's relatable that, you know, when I was a teenager, I bought a bike. I saved up my pocket money and I bought a BMX bike. And I'd always wanted one of these. And somebody offered me a BMX bike for the bargain price of £20. It was so cheap, I couldn't believe it. But as I rode away on my bike, just down the next road, I found a child that the bike had just been stolen from. And as soon as I saw this, I had a choice. I, I had to right the wrong and give it back, or else I had to ignore this child's loss and move on and, and I didn't I didn't have a choice from the moment I saw what was done I had become implicated I had a choice and I had to do something in church we can do something that helps to make a difference it won't solve the problem for everyone but it makes a difference from someone for someone and this pleases God so what can we do about it how do we hold the rich to account and how can we right some of the wrongs we see in the world around us. So for the rest of our time, I just want to suggest a few ways uh, that we can start to get involved. And the first one is to use your consumer power. Now, one of the big advantages we have of living in a materialistic world is our buying power as customers. And big businesses are increasingly sensitive to feedback from their customers, especially in such competitive markets as they find themselves in today. So take the example of Boohoo that we've talked about already. 
Since the news story of the, their possible link with slavery, the share price has dramatically dropped. As soon as the news came out, people voted with their credit cards and stopped buying. Models have refused to wear their clothing and pretty soon that big business is getting worried and starting instead to make big apologies and big promises. <laughs> Use your consumer power. Another example that's just come up is the issue of chlorinated chicken and hormone grown beef. I don't know if you've been following that story, but on Friday, Waitrose, shortly followed by several other big supermarkets, announced that they would never sell either of these food types because it didn't meet their own high standards. <laughs> but if you dig a bit deeper, you'll find the real reason for this decision. In Waitrose's weekend magazine, the CEO pointed out that a million people had signed a National Farmers Union petition calling for laws to prevent future trade deals leading to food imports that would be illegal to produce in the UK. Now, that's just another example of consumer power. And church, this is one of the ways in which we can make a difference. And the second one is this. Write letters, use social media and sign petitions. You know, in the last couple of years, I've discovered the power of writing letters or emails. I wonder why. But I've had some really big concerns about some of the decisions and issues that we're facing in our nation. Suffice to say, I've written more letters to my MP than ever before. And do you know what? I think it's making a difference. Some of the U-turns that we're seeing in legislation, I'm convinced is because of my letters, or at least the letters that the people are writing. I would also say that the people are learning about the power of social media to promote issues and get a response. I'm so encouraged to see this week, for instance, the overturn of the most extreme abortion laws in Europe, overturned because the people stood up and said no, in droves through social media campaigns and the lobbying of government. So take up the pen, open up the computer and write about your concerns and use your people power. Thirdly, try to buy ethically. Um, and this is a really great way to make a difference, but it's not as simple as it sounds. For example, I did a search on Google for ethical supermarkets and mostly Google got confused but there are a growing number of clothing and fair trade producers that are out there, even though it may take a bit of digging. And Paul and Pam have done quite a lot of work on this in the last few years, and we'll try and get some ideas out to you at some point over the summer. But again, consumer power can really help. Recently, I heard that Aldi were experimenting with various ethical toiletries to test the market. So tell them how happy that makes you if you were quick enough to get any of these products. But if people who do buy ethically ask their supermarkets for more choice, it will bring the prices down for the rest of us because the problem is that for most of us, buying ethically is not really an option because of the cost. And so if you can't afford to buy ethically, try secondhand. And this is something Alice and I have done a lot over the years so that if we needed to replace something, we'd always try and buy secondhand or pass on to others what we no longer needed. I mean, just in the last couple of months, we bought a very high quality table and chairs for our dining room, secondhand. It's 
getting ready to have everybody around for a meal. We're really excited about the possibility of that. And we've also sold our own used table and chairs to a lady who has student houses. And we also got a coffee table, which was free, but is perfect for the conservatory. And we'll even check secondhand for clothing too, and have managed to get some great bargains in the progress in the process. So why not give that a go? And this helps because it interrupts the supply chain of new goods coming in, if nothing else. But it also makes a difference in some small way. And finally, take action when you see it. This is another way that we can make a difference as a church. Speak up and take action when we see it. It might be a neighbour or someone you meet on the street, a conversation you overhear. But when any of these things happen around us or come to our attention, they, I think, become part of our responsibility. Put it another way, when these kinds of things come across our path, I believe that God is inviting us to partner with him in putting an injustice right. God is prompting me to do something. So perhaps you could get involved in something like Jared, or perhaps you could get involved in something like Jared and Helen are doing with Hope at Home, or connect in somewhere that you feel you could make a difference. So what is God asking you to do? Let me finish with reading you this. It's called, this is Martin's story, and this comes from the Unseen website where there's lots more stories like it on there. So Martin called the Modern Slavery Helpline. As Helen was saying earlier, it's wise not to make direct contact if we see these things, but there is this helpline. And he was anxious about his friend, Paul. Paul had previously had a good job as an engineer uh, but had been tricked into handing over his property and now he was living in squalid conditions in the factory where he was forced to work with no washing or toilet facilities. And he was given little food or pay and was physically beaten if he spoke out. And his exploiter told him uh, that he had links with the police, which made him then afraid of going to the police for help. And so the helpline advisor, Faye, reassured Martin that what this employer was doing was illegal and that they could help his friend to escape safely. It took several calls for Martin to admit the abuse uh, that was happening to him and to find the courage to decide that he wanted to break free. But they were able, with the police, uh, working closely together within 24 hours to rescue him from that situation and to give him the support he needed to make his recovery. Church, we can make a difference and we must make a difference. And this is a big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In the verse James writes immediately before his address to the rich, he writes a sobering verse in James chapter 4, verse 17. It says then, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. How about that? Now, I know I may be stirring some things up here today, but I think we're called to make a difference, for our lives to, to matter, to mean something, and for us to do something. You know, we are the church, and we're called to change the world. So what will you do? And what is he asking you to do? And just as I come to a close, I know this has been quite a hard-hitting message just before the summer, but it's just where we got to 
in the book, and I think God wants us to take it seriously. I just want to pray for you and just to invite you to offer yourself to God and just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, one of those ideas might, might spark something in you. But this isn't about making you feel bad, particularly. It's about us learning to follow the Holy Spirit. So what is he asking you to do and do that? So why don't you just put out your hands and I'm just going to pray for you very quickly as we come to a close. Father, here I am. Send me where you want me to go. Lord, I offer myself, offer my resources. I offer my abilities to you. And Father, will you use me? And Father, will you give me the privilege of partnering with heaven to bring freedom of whatever type, wherever I go, for your glory and in your name. Amen.